In 1991, President George H.W. Bush, so not the most recent George Bush president, uh, but his father, in February of 1991, he had an approval rating of 89%. At that time, that was a record. That means that 89% of people in the country, when polled, thought that President Bush uh, was doing a good job as president. 18 months later, he was voted out of office with only 37% of people approving of the job that he was doing. To go from 89% approval to 37% public approval in 18 months is remarkable. But such is the fickle nature of popularity. That one day people are for you and the next day they're against you. One day they think you're doing a great job and the next day they think you're doing a terrible job. And George Bush is not the only one who's experienced that. I'm, I'm sure Barack Obama could tell you the same thing. He knows what it's like for everybody to think he's doing a good job and he knows what it's like for most people to think he's doing a terrible job. They're not the only ones as well. Tim Tebow, I think, has experienced that fickle nature of popularity. So has uh, Lindsay Lohan or Kanye West. I mean, you can take anybody who's been in the public eye, politicians, pastors, homecoming queens, whomever. Anybody that's experienced perhaps even the rush of popular approval will tell you, do not put your hope and trust in public opinion. Anybody who's been in that sort of a position, if you've had that experience where you've had public approval, you know it doesn't last. But you know who else knows that? King David. Now this is crazy to me because I always think, and this is the sort of lie of popularity and public support, that if you were just popular enough, that there's got to be a few people out there for whom they're so popular or they're so powerful that they're insulated from the fickle nature of popularity. David would have been one of those guys. I mean, this is the greatest king in Israel's history. But the passage we're going to look at this morning, he learns the same truth that you and I know to be true. And we want to look at that and think about that together this morning. So please take a Bible and turn to 2 Samuel chapter 19. 2 Samuel 19. It's page 229 in the Bibles that the church provides. 2 Samuel 19. The context of our story is, is that last week we were looking at David on the run from his son Absalom who was uh, attempting to take over the kingdom from David. <clears throat> David knew he was in trouble. He fled Jerusalem. He met Absalom in battle. He wasn't there, but his armies met Absalom's armies in battle. Absalom's armies were defeated and Absalom was killed. David is now getting ready to return to Jerusalem. Now remember, he's been king for probably 30 years at this point. But what we read in verses 9 through 10 is stunning to me at least. It says there, throughout the tribes of Israel, the people were all arguing with each other saying, and what's about you're about to hear is not one person, it's a bunch of different statements that different people are saying. <clears throat> the king delivered us from the hand of our enemies. He's the one who rescued us from the hand of the Philistines. But he's now fled the country because of Absalom. Absalom, whom we anointed to rule over us, has died in battle. Why do you say nothing about bringing the king back? 
What's basically going on here is the nation of Israel is having an argument about whether they want David to be king or not. And I think to myself, that's crazy. <laughs> like David is the, now granted, Israel's only had two kings to this point, but he's a lot, lot better than the previous king. <clears throat> like as far as I can tell, he's never lost a battle as king of Israel. I mean, he's undefeated in leading them in battle. Their regional influence, the empire, is much broader now under David than I think they ever could have imagined or thought. God's been incredibly present in Israel through David. He's done miraculous things. And they're wondering whether they should have this guy back as king. I mean, he's going to go down as Israel's greatest king by far. He's going to go down as one of the greatest kings in history. You would think if anybody would have had popular support behind him, it would have been David. But no, same point. Do we really want him back or not? They're not sure whether or not they approve of David as their king. Well, the story goes on, verse 11. King David sent this message to Zadok and Abiathar the priests. Ask the elders of Judah, why should you be the last to bring the king back to his palace? Since what is being said throughout Israel has reached the king at his quarters. You are my brothers, my own flesh and blood, so why should you be the last to bring back the king? And say to Amasa, are you not my own flesh and blood? May God deal with me, be it ever so severely, if from now on you are not the commander of my army in place of Joab. He won over the hearts of all the men of Judah as though they were one man. They sent word to the king, return you and all your men. So here's what's going on. You got 12 tribes in Israel. David's hearing all of these rumors and he's stunned just like I'm stunned for him. He can't believe that after all these years of being faithful, of being king, of leading them in the ways of the Lord, of being successful in battle, undefeated, that they're not sure they want him back. So David writes to the one tribe that he thinks, well, now come on, Judah, you're my tribe. Like, I'm from you. Like, you should want me. And he writes to them and says, what's the matter with you? Are you going to be the last tribe to get on board with inviting me back to be the king? And Judah hears this and they're like, yeah, he's right. We should be for him. And then suddenly they're all for him again. But even how quickly they switched just proves the point of the fickle nature of popularity. Don't put your hope and your trust in the opinions of people. But the point here is actually broader than that. It's not just about popularity in general. The point is, don't put your trust in people. Whether groups or society or public opinion or individuals. Because what we're going to see in 2 Samuel 19 through 20 is literally a parade of individuals who David is going to interact with, eight in total, on his way back to Jerusalem. And the point of these eight characters is, look, none of them can be relied on. None of them can David put his trust in. And so we want to look together at this cast of characters that David meets one after another as we go back, as he moves back towards Jerusalem, and we go through Second Samuel 19 and 20. The first person we meet 
is a man named Shammai. He shows up in verses 16 through 23 of chapter 19. You may remember Shammai from last week. He's the guy when David is leaving who's yelling down curses on him. Remember him? He's throwing dirt and yelling curses. He's sort of up on the ridge. He's the one that Abishai is like, why don't I just go cut that guy's head off? Like, why are we listening to him? That's Shammai. Okay? Now David's coming back as king. He was leaving before in disgrace. Now he's coming back as king. So we pick up Shammai's story, the middle of verse 18. It's where the NIV has a new paragraph start. When Shammai, son of Gera, crossed the Jordan, he fell prostrate before the king and said to him, May my Lord not hold me guilty. Do not remember how your servant did wrong on the day my Lord the king left Jerusalem. May the king put it out of his mind. <laughs> Basically, uh, remember that thing I said to you when you were leaving? Remember that cursing stuff? How about we just, let's just forget that happened, huh? Wouldn't that be great? Let's just, let's just pretend that never happened. That's what Shammai's doing. Now, he represents then that sort of fair weather friend. You know what those are like. That sort of fair weather friend like, when things are going great, yeah, we're all for you. You're the king. You're great. I want to be kind to you. But when things are not going well, then all of a sudden they're the first person who stand up and curses us. Or they're the first person to say, well, you got what you deserved. Perhaps you have a friend in school who, after you got the lead in the school musical, suddenly wanted to hang out with you all the time. But perhaps next year, when you don't get the lead... They're not going to want to have as much to do with you. That's the fair weather friend. And David experiences that in the person of Shammai. Now, the next two characters he meets, they actually come together. We're going to take them one at a time, are named Mephibosheth and Ziba. They're verse 24 through verse 30 of chapter 19. Now, Mephibosheth and Ziba, we've met before. We met them in 2 Samuel 9. Mephibosheth is King Saul, the, the king before David. It's his grandson. It's Jonathan's son. He's crippled in both legs. And David basically adopted him as his own son. Because of David's friendship with Jonathan, he takes Mephibosheth and welcomes him into his family. He gives him everything and provides for him, lets him eat at his table. Ziba is Mephibosheth's servant. David assigns him that role. Well, when David is fleeing from Jerusalem, running away from Absalom, he has to leave so quickly that they've got no supplies. And as he and his men are leaving, here comes Ziba to meet him. And he brings a whole bunch of donkeys and food. And David is like, wow, this is awesome. Thank you. This is great. But then he says, well, where's my son? Where's, Meph where's Mephibosheth? You know, it's great that you're here. Thank you for this. But where's Mephibosheth? Why isn't he here? And Ziba says to David, Oh, Mephibosheth joined the rebellion. And David is heartbroken, but he leaves. Now on the way back in, here comes Mephibosheth. He's got a long beard. He's not been taking care of himself. It looks like he's been in mourning. And he shows up and he says to David, oh my Lord, I'm so glad you're home. I'm so glad that you're here. I was so worried about you. And David's like, uh, yeah, well, where were you on the way out? 
Like, it's great that you've shown back up on the way in, but where were you when I needed you on the way out? But Bephimisheth is not a fair weather friend. What he says to David, he says, well, you know, I'm crippled. I need help getting on my donkey. I cannot saddle a donkey for myself. And I asked Ziba to do it and he refused. My servant betrayed me and he came and he lied to you. He came and he told you that I had joined the rebellion. He said, nothing could be further from the truth. And there's an indication in the text that Mephibosheth's actually telling the truth. And I believe he is. And so therefore what Mephibosheth represents are those people in our lives who are good and loyal. A good friend, but unable to help. He wants to help, he just can't. Perhaps it's like a friend, maybe you've just moved here from out of town. And maybe you had a close friend back in the city you came from. And she's been uh, best friends with you for a long time. She wants desperately to help you make new friendships here in Grand Rapids. It's just she doesn't live here. She can't do it. That's Mephibosheth. Those good, loyal people in our lives, but who just simply can't help us with whatever it is we might be going through at this point. Now, Ziba, on the other hand, he looked like a good guy. He turns out not to be such a good guy. And he represents what we would call the selfish opportunists. This is Ziba. Those are the people in our lives who look at the trouble or things that we're going through and think, ooh, I could profit from this. Maybe that person at work who realizes you're behind on that project, who volunteers to help but does so in an unethical way or perhaps in a way to stab you in the back or, or perhaps simply just so that they can get a promotion. It's not out of any sort of love for you. They look at your problems and my problems and think, ooh, this is a chance for me to advance my career. That's what Ziva's doing. David's fleeing. Hey, he may come back. If I give him something, maybe he'll give me something in return. And Ziba represents those people in our lives who are selfish opportunists. Well, the fourth character that David meets, literally in this parade that is going by, is a man named Barzilla. Barzilla is in verses uh, 31 through 39 of 2 Samuel 19. Now, Barzilla is an older gentleman. We're told he's 80 years old. He's very wealthy. And when David is on the run, Barzilla is incredibly generous to him. He lets David stay with him. He provides for him. He's an incredible blessing. And David is thankful to God for Barzilla. As he's going back to Jerusalem now, he says to Barzilla, you know what? You've been such a blessing. You would be so helpful. I would love to have you with me back in Jerusalem. Your wisdom, your generosity, your encouragement. It would be great to have you with me. And he invites him to come. But look what Barzilla says in verse 35. I am now 80 years old. <laughs> this is how he describes old age, which is kind of funny. Can I tell the difference between what is good and what is not? Can your servant taste what he eats and drinks anymore? Can I still hear the voices of men and women singers? Why should your servant be an added burden to my Lord, the King? And Barzilla represents in our lives those perhaps elderly father figures who have been an absolute treasure and a blessing, but they've really reached a stage in life that they can't help much anymore. Age is caught up with them, and whether it's in a wisdom point of view or a mental point of view or a physical point of view or whatever it may be, Barzilla is simply, he's like, I'm just, I'm too old. And maybe you've had someone like that in your life. Maybe it was a parent. Maybe it was a mentor. 
who'd been a great blessing to you, but simply age is the unstoppable force that caused them to be unable to, to help you. Well, that's Barzilla. That's who he represents. The fifth character is a man named Sheba. Now, if you remember, the tribes in Israel are debating, do we want David back or king? Judah, which is, which is David's own tribe, says, yeah, wait a minute, we want this guy back. He's our king, we should go get him. So they make plans to go and get David and have a very formal processional where they welcome him back to the city of Jerusalem as king. Well, the other 11 tribes who are over here debating whether they want him or not suddenly hear, well, wait a minute, that tribe's going to get him. And so they all come running over and they get mad at the elders of Judah. They're like, hey, how come you didn't invite us? And they're like, well, you didn't even know if you wanted him back as king. What do you mean, why didn't we invite you? So the elders of the other tribes get mad at the elders of Judah and they're having a fight as to why didn't they come? Why weren't they invited to bring David back? Well, while they're fighting as to who gets to support David the most, a man named Sheba stands up. It says in chapter 20, verse 1. Now a troublemaker named Sheba, son of Bichri, a Benjamite, happened to be there. He sounded the trumpet and shouted, We have no share in David, no part in Jesse's son. Every man to his own tent, O Israel. So all the men of Israel deserted David to follow Sheba, son of Bichri. But the men of Judah stayed by their king all the way from the Jordan to Jerusalem. I mean, come on. Talk about the fickle nature of public opinion. These 11 other tribes are like, well, we're not sure if we want him back. What? You're taking him back? We want him back. Well, what? No, we're with you. We're with Sheba over here. Going back and forth. Well, Sheba, he represents the troublemakers that we know in our life. This may be the person perhaps in your Sunday school class or your small group who senses that there may be some disunity or some trouble or some tension and sees that as an opportunity to be able to make matters worse. That's what Sheba does. He senses there is disagreement among the tribes and uses this as an opportunity to undermine the king. And he represents the troublemakers uh, that we all know in our lives. Well, that leads to the sixth character, a man named Amasa. We, we heard him earlier. Basically, David has appointed Amasa to be the head of his army. Joab used to be the head of his army, but in the battle against Absalom, David told Joab, do not harm my son. Joab killed him anyway. So now David's like, look, I don't want you in charge of my army. He wants, I said, I'll take Amasa. So verse four, the king said to Amasa, summon the men of Judah to come to me within three days and be here yourself. But when Amasa went to summon Judah, he took longer than the time the king had sent for him. Now David is thinking, look, just like Absalom should have gotten rid of David early on, but didn't, David's thinking, if we don't deal with the Sheba problem immediately, we're going to be, we're going to be in trouble. So he takes Amasa and he says, go around Judah and summon an army and let's go after the Sheba guy immediately. Amasa goes to do it. He just doesn't get done in the time that it's supposed to get done. And so he represents those people in our lives who are just not reliable. Maybe like the person, if perhaps your spouse has, because of health issues, now become a shut-in. They hear about that and they say, oh, I'll come spend some time with him. But then they never actually show up 
It never actually happens. That sort of unreliable person. It's very important to David. He's like, look, we got three days. Get whoever you can and get back here in three days. And Amasa simply is not reliable. He's just unable to meet the deadline that needs to be met. Which brings us to the seventh character. A man named Abishai, who we already talked about a little bit. When Amasa doesn't return with the army, David says, okay, well, I've got some fighting men here. Verse number six, David said to Abishai, now Sheba, son of Bichri, will do us more harm than Absalom did. Take your master's men and pursue him, or he will find fortified cities and escape from us. So Joab's men and the Carathites and the Pelathites and all the mighty warriors went out under the command of Abishai. They marched out from Jerusalem to pursue Sheba, son of Bichri. David's like, we can't wait any longer. You take the troops that we have here and try to find him. If you can get him, we'll be okay. The problem is, is that although the troops leave under Abishai's command, they come back under somebody else's command. They come back under Abishai's brother's command, a man named Joab. The problem is, is that even though they leave with Abishai in charge, he's not able to handle the task, mostly because he can't handle his brother. And by the end of the story, Joab is now again in charge of David's army. And so Abishai represents the people in our lives who are simply incompetent. They're unable to do the thing that they need to do. Maybe you have an employee at work, somebody that works for you that you've assigned an important task to. You're like, look, this is crucial. I need you to lead this task. I need this, and we need to be successful in this. They simply can't do it. They simply cannot offer the leadership that's necessary to make that team work. That's Abishai. Which leads us to our final character, and I'm sure you've guessed who he is. His name is Joab. When Abishai goes out with a small contingent of troops, it seems like Joab never hears about a fight he doesn't want to join. So he comes and joins with them. Well, while they're out looking for Sheba, Amasa does arrive with the army. He's late, but he does finally get there. He's showing up with the army. Well, Amasa and Joab are cousins. And so Joab goes to greet Amasa, who is now the commander of the army. He goes to give him a hug, and Amasa, thinking nothing, well, we're cousins, why wouldn't he be hugging me? Doesn't realize Joab's got a dagger in his hand. Joab stabs Amasa, kills him, and leaves him bleeding by the side of the road. And for the rest of the story, Joab's simply in charge. And by the time 2 Samuel 20 closes, Joab is back in command of David's armies. And what Joab represents is those treacherous people that we all know. This may be your female friend at school who's befriended you, but really wants to just stab you in the back and steal your boyfriend. This may be that girl or boy at school who you know is simply telling lies about themselves because they want to attract a person of the opposite sex. That sort of treacherous person that you think, I can't trust that person any farther than I can throw them. It's a long list of characters, but what's the point? I mean, you can read this. I read it this week and I was like, wow, there's a lot of people. What is it? What's the deal here? It's all one point. Do not put your trust in people. Do not put your hope in people. Don't put it in public opinions. Even if you're the most popular king of all time, people are going to turn on you. Some people are fair weather friends. 
Some people are loyal and good and we thank God for them, but they're simply unable to help us. Some people are like parents to us or elderly, wonderful father figures who have blessed our life, but age has caught up with them and they're not able to help anymore. Some people are troublemakers. Some people are unreliable. Some people are incompetent. Some people are treacherous. The point, we could have a, a, a hundred more characters up here. The point of all of these, the reason that God has run out all these people together is to make one point. You cannot put your trust in people. We thank God for good people. We thank God for the way God blesses us through people. But at the end of the day, there is nobody in this entire list that David can turn to. But David knows that. He knows that he can't put his trust in people, that there's only one person who is absolutely faithful, absolutely reliable, absolutely trustworthy. And his name is God. Now his descendant, David's descendant, Jesus, will hammer this point home even harder. In John chapter 2, it says that now while he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, excuse me, many people saw the miraculous signs Jesus was doing and believed in his name. So these are good people. But notice what the next phrase says. But Jesus would not entrust himself to them. Why? Because he knew all people. Jesus knows that despite Peter's best intentions, Peter is going to deny Jesus. Jesus knows that despite how much he's loved Judas, Judas is going to betray him. Jesus knows that despite how much time he's put into his disciples, how faithful he's been to them, that at the cross they're all going to abandon him. Jesus knows that the women who love him, who are for him, that those who stay at the cross are going to be powerless to help him out of that situation. Jesus knows that the crowds who on the triumphal entry are cheering for him, Hosanna, Hosanna to the son of David, those same people five days later are going to say, crucify him, crucify him. Jesus knows don't put your trust in people. Not that people don't do good. Not that nobody ever blessed Jesus. Not that nobody ever served Jesus. But at the end of the day, you cannot ultimately put your hope or trust in humans. Where does Jesus put his trust? First Peter 2 makes it very clear. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. He would not entrust himself to humans, but he did trust himself to God. What Jesus knows and is communicating to us today, there's only one person who will never leave us or forsake us. There is only one person who will never abandon us. There is only one person who loves us absolutely, totally, and completely. And as much as we praise God for a spouse or for children or for friends or for mentors or for pastors or for church small group members or for neighbors or for co-workers, you cannot ultimately trust any of them. Only God. Only God is strong enough, loving enough, faithful enough. This week I received an email from someone 
basically started out by saying that they felt that the church, this church, Calvary Church, had abandoned them. We had let them down in their time of crisis. As I read the email, of course, my first inclination is, well, we must have done a better job than this. There must be some excuse, but there was no excuse. It's unfortunate. I'm not here making excuses for it. It's wrong. But the person did go on to say that even though the church's failure had made them think that God had failed them, God showed up and showed that he hadn't. And I'm not excusing what we didn't do, but I am here to exalt what God did do. That at the end of the day, as as hard as we might try, as hard as you might try, as much as your spouse might try or friends might try or whomever, at the end of the day, we are finite human beings. But God is infinite. He's infinitely trustworthy. He's the only one that you and I can put our hope in who will not let us down. Which brings us to communion. Communion is a time in which we celebrate that while we were still sinners, God demonstrated his love for us in that Christ died for us. And today, in just a moment, you're going to have a bread and cup distributed to you. You're going to take a piece of bread and and a cup and hold on to them. We're going to partake of them all together. But while you're holding that bread and holding that cup, I want you to think about this. Jesus knew that at the cross, there was no human who could help him. So he entrusted himself to the one who always does the right thing. And think about this. At the moment that Jesus is hanging on the cross, the Bible tells us that God took all of my sin, all of your sin, all of the sins of the whole world, meaning everything that anybody in the whole world had ever done wrong, and gave them to Jesus, put them on Jesus, meaning that when he looked at Jesus, he saw all the wicked stuff that anybody had ever done. And the point is, if at that moment he did not abandon Jesus to the grave despite the fact that he was bearing the sins of the whole world, then he will not abandon you or me either. That this bread and this cup are a reminder that though friends may fail me and foes assail me, God will never leave me. He has sworn it on the blood of his own son. I will never leave you or forsake you. And if you and I think that he's gone, we're simply mistaken. We just don't see him. He's there. Never once will he leave us. And as you take communion, be reminded, I don't know how people may have failed you this week. I don't know how your spouse may have let you down. I don't know how a treacherous person may have stabbed you in the back. I don't know how a a wonderful, loving friend might have been unable to help you with something you needed. But I think that Jesus brought you here this morning and me here this morning to remind us, look, at the end of the day, there's only one person you can trust. We thank God for spouses, for children, for friends, for pastors, for all of that. But we do not put our hope in them. But God is here to say, trust me. Trust in my unfailing love for you. And as you hold this bread and this cup, remember God is for you, not against you. He will never leave you. He will never forsake you. Trust in his unfailing love.